This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world. Welcome to Audio Immunity. Uh, today is April 8th, and we are recording episode 12. I'm Kate Franz, and with me today are Matt Woodruff. Hello, everybody. And also with us is Kevin Bonham. Hey, Kevin. Hello. Hi, Kevin. How's it going? Hi, Kevin. Are we not doing what are we drinking anymore? I really feel like we should bring that back. We should bring back drinking. I would, but I'm I'm in lab right now, and there is a strict no alcohol policy uh, of drinking in lab. Oh my gosh, there's a chocolate bar on the ground. (laughs) 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 I'm in. I was about to explain this awful awful policy of no drinking, but I just found a perfectly wrapped Hershey's bar. (laughs) But it turns out I work in the Wonka factory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because lab floor chocolate is definitely something you want to be putting in your mouth. (laughs) No, it looks looks perfectly wrapped. Are you sure that someone's not trying to kill you? Because that seems like a trap. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the guy who puts razor blades in Halloween candy. (laughs) So I think I I think this is John's. I think John had it in here and it dropped on the ground and now I'm finding it. I think you should eat he, it. John had a bunch of Hershey bars today. I don't know why. Okay. For well, don't unwrap it in the microphone. Uh, okay. Anyhow. Anyway. Um. So today we're going to be talking about a paper. That came out in Immunity a couple years ago now, about a year and a half, two years ago. And it's called A Beneficial Role for Immunoglobin E in Host Defense Against Honeybee Venom. So the first author is Thomas Marshall, and the last author is Stephen Golly. Wait, so I feel like we're... And there's what? some people here from Children's Boston Children's Hospital. Yeah, cool. there's there's at least one, but I hadn't heard of them. Yeah, I, I looked that up. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like we're preempting you guys actually with this because when I, I had uh, suggested that we do this paper, I had in mind that it would be a nice spring paper, right? Because it has to do with TH2 responses, which are all allergy related, you know, pollen is coming. And actually, I've got like a heavy cloud of dust on my car and all also, you know, bee stings because that happens in the spring. Mm-hmm. But it it sounds like it snowed and sleeted in Boston today. So well, yeah, it turns out that you in Atlanta got <laughs> you have eighty degree weather, and we in Boston had snow. Right. So that uh, yeah, I feel like it's not quite spring. So neither there. of us and, is and we spring. yeah we actually didn't have spring. Uh, I'm confused because it's summer now apparently here. Uh, yeah. So that's just how it is. Although so, it was it was a bit. Interesting, because I was reading this paper this afternoon, and I was being attacked by bees. Cool. So, yeah, and it turns out bees in Atlanta are giant. They're huge bees. I feel like everything is bigger in Atlanta. All the life, all the fauna and flora is larger. That's what I'm learning. I believe that is in Texas, not in Atlanta. I think you're confusing. Maybe it's the slogan for Texas, but the reasons are probably the same. (laughs) Right. Also, lizards. Lizards exist in Atlanta, I've learned. There are no lizards in Boston, really, from what I've seen, or they're very small. But lizards in Atlanta are are quite large, and they just hang out on walls, and they look at you. They're pretty cool. I saw a newt, apparently. Someone told me it was a newt today. That is not a lizard. I know. That is an amphibian. No, I was... I was there was a segue there. There are other forms of life also. I didn't hear a segue. Let's talk about the paper, <laughs> which is about allergies. And not newts. And not newts. We should try to find a newt newts, paper. I wonder if newts have allergies. Amphibian immunology is weird. So we can maybe do that at another time. But I feel like Hidaplu is already answering this question in his lap. I feel like he must have a postdoc looking at newt antibodies. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, <laughs> but speaking of, well, no, that's not a good transition. Speaking of antibodies. Speaking of anything. <laughs> speaking of anything immunology related, we're going to talk about allergies and immunology of allergies and specifically uh, the immunology of type 2 immunity, which is sort of an archaic term, but it refers to a branch of the immune system mediated by Th2 cells, T helper cell type 2 cells, which we haven't actually discussed much on the post- podcast. We've talked, I think, about Th17. We've talked about Th1. Uh, we haven't spent a lot of time on Th2. And frankly, the reason for that is because nobody in the West cares about Th2. And I think mostly we don't care about Th2 because we don't actually understand it. It's very confusing. The immunology around it is weird. 
But principally what TH2 is involved in is mediating responses to things like parasitic helminth infections. So if you have roundworm, then you probably have some type 2 immunity to that. But thankfully in the West, we don't get much roundworm infection. Uh, and the other thing that it does is it causes allergies. So we are used to thinking about TH2 immunity as just a bad thing. It sucks uh, for the people that suffer from allergies. They have this type 2 immunity and it's just a pain in the butt. There's an additional part of this and I, we have talked a little bit about it before is a lot of the effector cells involved in TH2 immunity are not spectacularly easy to work with, right? So in a TH1 response, we're talking about T cell responses. We're talking about antibody responses as primary mediators. And that is true at some level NK with a TH and K cells. And that's true, certainly in a TH2 response. But in a TH2 response, some less canonical players come into the, into the center of the frame a little bit. So you do get an antibody response, but your antibody responses tends to be slated towards an IgE response, things like this. And that's, you know, these are antibodies that we generally refer to as involved in allergy, asthma, things like that. But and the way a lot of these IgE responses work is that they actually work through other cell types like mast cells, which are just awful to work with. And so people really don't know anything about them. And also basophils and eosinophils, which are equally awful to work with. I still don't know what those are. So do you remember when we were talking about this second year? In, I do. Yeah, we were just sitting around and we had taken a full year's worth of classes, <laughs> like PhD level <laughs> classes in immunology. And I remember asking Kevin something along the lines of, I'm pretty sure I still don't know what a basophil is. And I can say that that has not really been clarified to me yet. So we're pretty far in now. I feel like if someone was going to tell me what they are, they would have told me by now. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that eosinophils and basophils are different from mast cells because somebody said so. Because stains. No, yeah, I was yeah. going to say because of stains, which is just as <laughs> good of, of a reason eosin. as all the different T cells and all, all the other different immunology cells in like the immune system they just have a different stain on them <laughs> yeah but the difference is that we don't actually know functionally what they do and so when matt said these are like less canonical actors they're less canonical not because they're they don't have a job that's as important as other things it's just because we don't know how to study them so nobody studies them so we don't know anything about them right does that seem fair i think <laughs> yeah. that's fair i i think that's that's reasonable there was yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that sort of floats out there. And I do know some, you know, some good people working on these types of things, but these cells are just very hard to isolate and study functionally. And, you know, Kate, you mentioned it is just a different stain and that's true. But when we're talking about eosinophils, basophils and mast cells, we're talking like old school 50s style chemical stains are different. Like we don't even mm -hmm. have good antibodies that work. I mean, you can, you can put antibodies to them and, and get them out on a fax plot, but pulling them out you, in a because way. Because I feel like if you put these cells through fax, they're going to explode. Yeah. <laughs> that's, well, that's just the how thing, these cells right? behave. That's the thing. So you can find the markers, but also, yeah, by pulling these cells out, what you get on the back end is like a cell that just freaked out the entire time that you were doing the experiment. And now what are you looking at? <laughs> yeah, I guess before we, before we get too down into the weeds on, on that, maybe we should talk about what these cells actually do. So these, all of these cells, I think we can just describe these three types of cells, mast cells, basophils, and eosinophils as, you know, like I said, we don't really know what they are. Comparably, mast cells are probably the best studied. All of these cells are a cell type called a granulocyte. And it's called a granulocyte because there are cells with these granules in them. And the granules are filled with nasty chemicals like histamines proteases. and cytokines and proteases and stuff that are just going to mess other stuff up. Right. And, and even more canonical uh, signaling molecules through the immune system. You know, mast cells have tons of TNF-alpha, which we're talking, uh, we've talked right. about in the past in those granules. So essentially what you can think about is they're just sort of like this toxic bomb <laughs> waiting to go off. And they rely on, um, or at least in the case of mast cells, they often rely on the adaptive immune system in order to sort of tell them what to go off against. But even that process is not spectacularly well understood, it doesn't seem to me. Right. Um, so the, the way yeah. that these effector cells have their function is they basically release these granules. 
The granules are preformed. They're vesicles that contain all of these chemicals. And then when they're activated, they dump the contents of those granules immediately out into the surrounding tissue. And so if you, uh, people that give lectures on this in immunology courses will often like slap themselves on the arm and then you see an inflammatory response occur. You see the redness around where they slapped. And that's because these cells can actually respond to physical uh, disruption and they release their granules. So that's one way they get activated. But that property means, again, if you pull them out of the tissue where they reside, they love to just degranulate. They love to explode and release all their contents. And then it's unclear if their behavior in a tissue culture dish after they've degranulated uh, is really reflective of their behavior in tissue. Right. So, And I know a lot of, you know, we tend to think about these things as um, monolithic entities, right? So mast cells, people think of mast cells. But I suspect, and based on my conversations with people that actually work in this field, Dan Dwyer amongst them, uh, I think we think about mast cells in the same way we used to think about a dendritic cell or a T cell. I think when it all comes down to it, what you're going to find is that there are actually lots of different kinds of mast cells and they all have slightly different properties and they're set up in different locations in the body. And it turns out all of that's very, very important, but we don't really understand it yet. Right. Yeah. We're, we are at the same level of understanding with these granulocytes as we were with, say, macrophages in like the 70s. Right. Just because we haven't been able to do much uh, experimentation with them. So that being said, all of that being said, we do know that type 2 immunity, this TH2 immunity, is really important for mediating certain diseases because what we can do is we can knock out certain components of the immune system that are important to mediate these types of responses and see what changes. And so TH2 immunity, as I said at the beginning, is really important for responses to parasitic worms. You can imagine that the response that you would want to a virally infected cell is going to be very, very different than the immune response you're going to want to a giant multicellular worm hanging out in your intestine, right? So the idea of these different types of immunity, Th1 mediated immunity, Th2 mediated immunity, Th17 mediated immunity, and there's like a jillion other subsets that people like to pretend are real. And all of these have different responses because immune responses to different types of pathogens need to be different because the lifestyle of the bug is different and the sorts of responses that you can mount against those bugs is going to be different. So I can gobble up a bacteria with a macrophage. A macrophage cannot gobble up a worm that is like 10,000 times larger than this. So instead, dumping toxic chemicals onto a worm from activating a mast cell, that might be more effective. And it seems to work, you know, in several cases. It, it seems to be effective. You just create an environment locally around whatever the giant parasite is that's toxic enough where that parasite doesn't isn't capable of surviving in it. And then you have the much more, you know, the larger organismal things that happen. Um, peristalsis increases, for example, you get diarrhea, right? So you create a really toxic environment in your intestinal tract the worm dies and you immediately try to flush it out by increasing fluid yeah, even flow it, through the even system. Even if it's not even if it's not dead, you're going to rip it out as quickly as possible. Exactly. exactly. So, yeah, you you get into much larger organismal responses and I think that that's what we're getting into really here when we're talking about allergy and the introduction of this paper actually discusses what is it the toxoid theory? Uh, I think that he lays out from the early 90s. But basically the argument is that there's a reason that we call there's a reason that we get diarrhea, you know, all of these unfortunate large things, you know, that annoy us about allergies and things like that. All of these things exist for a reason. Right. So let's talk about that. So generally speaking, an allergy is an abnormal or uh, an inappropriate immune response to some non-dangerous stimulus. So I put allergies in a very similar category as autoimmunity. So the idea is that something that the immune system shouldn't really care about, it does care about, and then you have pathology based on inflammatory responses to things that are not dangerous, right? So in an autoimmune response, you have a normal immune reaction. It's just against the wrong thing. So all of the inflammation characteristic of an autoimmune response, that inflammation is a, an adaptive response 
if you're targeting an infectious agent, but it's maladaptive if you're targeting your own tissue. And I think allergies are essentially the same idea, in, except instead of targeting an external stimulus, or I'm sorry, instead of tar uh, targeting an internal self antigen, you're targeting an external stimulus, but it's still an inappropriate inflammatory response. So for example, you have an allergic reaction to bee pollen. It's an inflammatory response that would be really effective if that bee pollen happened to be a roundworm. But since it's just a normal component of, um, sorry, well, bee pollen. But, yeah. <laughs> no, not So maybe, pollen. maybe flower pollen. Yeah. But I, Did I, I say understood what you, you, didn't say you said. Pollen. You said bee pollen a couple times. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's awesome. Right. That's yeah. going to be fun to edit out. Norm normal um, pollen, normal everyday venom, flower yeah. pollen. So, right. uh, I th but now doesn't this like toxin hypothesis slightly argue against that? In that, well, let's yeah, let's let's so get into the bee, po or bee pollen, <laughs> pollen <laughs> and bee venom. Pollen is not an unharmful allergen. Pollen has proteases. It's how it's able to fertilize an egg and a flower. And bee venom does have um, chemical properties that make it damaging and destructive. So um, these would be called toxins because they're causing some sort of damage um, to the host. And so I so I, I guess like the, the idea that they are just like these ubiquitous things that are not damaging or not harmful are, isn't true. So the idea that there would be an immune response to them is is not a, a strong it's not like a I'm losing my thought. The the idea that we would have an immune response to them is not so strange. Yeah. Yeah, although I I think that the the protease activity of pollen is probably not actually dangerous. I mean, most of us that don't have allergies don't suffer from the presence of pollen in our airways, right? Right, but I I actually sort of agree with what Kate just said though in that you don't quite know. So papain, papain is a weird protease. Right. And one of the things that papain does is it seems to somehow affect B cells in a way that those B cells become responsive, even though papain inherently, you know, it's not it's not killing the B cells. But B cells do seem to be responding to the presence of papain yeah. uh, to such an extent where we're actually uh, people use papain as an adjuvant. You know, it's it's just a protease, but it also has the ability to stimulate an immune response. So you never quite know what those proteases are cleaving, you know, what they're affecting. Maybe it has an effect on your microbiota in well, some way. Well, I, I think what, the, what you might be getting at, Kevin, though, is that obviously pollen has not evolved to be a pathogen to humans. So it's not an evolved activity against a human. It just happen. It just happens. It's a consequence of right, the other functions think, that it has. I think it's actually, it's sort of the reverse. So the, the immune response against proteases is adaptive for fighting worms because parasitic helminths have, they often secrete large amounts of cysteine proteases mm -hmm. um, as part of their pathogenic lifestyle. And it just turns out that these cysteine proteases from papaya or from pollen also have the same chemical properties that apparently the immune response is targeting on accident. It's kind of like the way that we have, uh, we've talked previously about pathogen-associated molecular patterns, things like uh, unmethylated CPG DNA, which is normally only found on uh, in bacteria, but the receptors that can see that sort of DNA can also see self-DNA. Yeah. under certain circumstances. So, so I guess the larger point might be, though, that that we think of many of these things as inert. Um, they may not be entirely inert. The, the counter argument, I think, is something like peanuts, because it's unclear to me what the allergen in peanuts is actually doing as far as Enzymatic, enzymatic properties, and it's it's possible that there is an enzymatic property of peanut antigen that Do I'm not aware of. Do we know the of. of peanuts? I actually, I, it may be known, but I don't know so, it. So, uh, I know that dust mite, I... the dust mite allergen is a protease as well. A lot that of allergens is a protease. Yep, that is a protease. So, Sorry, this Kate, might need to be edited out, but I thought that people... 
I thought there was a hypothesis that it wasn't anything to do with the peanuts. It had to do with a fungus that grows on the peanuts, and that fungus has a toxin, and that's actually what causes peanut allergy. I will find out. Um, so do well, well. so do either of you are either of you guys familiar with this toxin hypothesis? It was kind of like it was mentioned in the in the paper, and then also in a blog post that you sent to us, Kevin. Um, I was not aware of the toxin hypothesis. So I didn't see it explained in any great way, but my thought with it was that the toxin hypothesis explains a way for toxins to be controlled by the adaptive immune system. So it gives some hypothesis to why a toxin would have an adaptive response as opposed to just being a mistake of recognizing a mistake of a response that's supposed to recognize worms and instead is activated by these these different proteases and whatnot. Yeah, but that that idea doesn't seem particularly novel to me because we know that, for instance, bacterial toxins, so bacteria that secrete things like tetanus toxin or diphtheria toxin, neutralizing antibodies against those toxins are super valuable. That's how we get vaccines against diphtheria and tetanus, for example. Mm -hmm. We make, in that case, type 1, IgG immunity against the bacterial toxins that neutralize it and prevent them from having their pathogenic potential. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you would also make antibody responses, adaptive immune responses against other types of toxins, that doesn't seem particularly surprising to me. Why you would want it to be IgG, or sorry, why you would want it to be IgE as opposed to IgG. So IgG, immunoglobulin G, is the typical antibody produced by a type 1 immune response. And its normal function is to float around in the blood and neutralize stuff and tag things for phagocytosis and degradation. What we're talking about in this paper is IgE, which is associated, as Matt mentioned, with uh, sort of blanketing mast cells. And then uh, when those mast cells see something through IgE, then they degranulate onto that thing. So why you would want an immune response against a toxin to be IgE-mediated is unclear to me. I suspect that actually an IgG response would be better, but because proteases tend to be associated with worm infections and IgE responses are much better at combating worms, toxins that look like worm products are going to be are going to mount a type 2 immune response as opposed to a type 1 response, I think. So, in this toxin hypothesis to kind of get at what you're going at, the one of the first things that is laid out is that toxins are ubiquitous. So, there's the ability that they could interact with the adaptive immune system and they also cause damage. So, there's a, a justification for would the immune immune system actually activate in this case. So, it's around and it is damaging. So, you're going to get some sort of activation. The second thing that I read was that um, the toxins are able to bind to different proteins in the serum of your blood. So maybe they're evolving away from the immune reaction. So they're showing maybe some evolutionary pressure um, of being neutralized by the immune system. The third is that um, allergens are toxic substances. So the allergens in like bee venom will do harm. I think that's kind of like with one. I don't know. Anyway, and then the fourth is that the allergic reactions that are elicited from the presence of the allergens could get rid of the allergens. So in the case of the proteases and bee venom, the mast cells release a bunch of shit that just degrades the venom. So maybe neutralization isn't the best because you could like degrade the antibody. Maybe you want to activate something that's going to get rid of this protease by unleashing just like a bunch of destructive crap on it. Also, I mean, you also are doing things like eliciting coughs, pooping, like all these are good. I mean, they're good for worms, but they also can get particle like particulates out of you. So I, I mean, the paper, so the paper starts, the paper starts to look at this. So the hypothesis would be that when we see allergies, so when you see someone go have this hyper activation of the immune resp- of the immune system to an allergen, what we see as an allergy is actually an an overreaction of a response that would have been smaller and more targeted and wouldn't cause you to have some sort of problem. So that allergies are actually the amplification of a more reasonable response. So 90% of people, when they have bee pollen, they would ha, make IG. So 90% of people, <laughs> when they encounter bee venom, they're going to make IgE responses and they're going to clear it the next time they see it. But 10% of people are going to make like a hyper response the second time they see it. So you would expect to be able to model the normal response, the normal IgE response. And so I, that's what this paper starts to do um, in its first figure is to see, well, in the second figure, the first figure sets it up. 
<laughs> yeah. Did anyone else read the first figure like five times to try to figure out what the hell they were doing? Because um, they inject I mean, mice. I read the text. I kind of understood it. I feel like so okay. I did read the TH2 versus the TH1 making um, responses like the that the I read that the mice are slanted differently. And so then I was a little bit confused. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, these are two different responses. Yeah. yeah. So they and actually a lot of um, vaccine papers will run this risk uh, and, and it won't be picked up on. And so you sort of unfortunately have to take a lot of it with a grain of salt. Um, black six mice have an overwhelming propensity, although I guess it's probably less overwhelming um, to run into a TH1 type response. So they tend to be a little bit more resistant to generate, you know, strong antibody responses uh, towards a TH2 slated phenotype, I guess. Balbses are the opposite. And Balbses are heavily slated in the direction of TH2 immunity over TH1 immunity. And a lot of the, or one of the major problems that a lot of vaccine groups will run into is a lot of vaccine models are actually developed with a Balbse background in mind. And then they're trying to generate really strong TH2 responses or really strong antibody responses generally. And they end up accidentally using a model where it's super easy to do that. And then they test it in a different background. And it turns out that everything that they just did won't repeat in a background that's a little more genetically diverse or a little more true to a normal immune response. So I guess my my point is that I I appreciated at least that they did this in two different backgrounds. Yeah, that <laughs> I agree. That was definitely good and it's interesting to note that the Balbsi mice tend to be um, more protected from these sorts of, from the trigger, the B venom trigger of TH2 immunity. So maybe their propensity to develop TH2 responses is somehow protective. That was kind of cool. So we should say what they are actually doing here. (laughs) So basically what they're doing is they're taking B venom, just unadulterated B venom straight from the bees. I actually am interested in how you get B venom. Do you crush up a bee? And then I think they got it straight from the bees, but I wanted to know how they do that i didn't actually look at the methods oh my god bee pollen is a thing i knew it was a thing it's a health food thing it's one of those hippie things (laughs) oh my goodness okay sorry that'll be the title bee pollen is one of those hippie things I was Let like, me just I'm mark so that sure, in the audio. I'm so sure that I watched an episode of Nashville recently where Deacon <laughs> is drinking a smoothie because, spoiler alert, he has cancer. And he's saying, like, bee pollen, it's so gross. And then his, ne- his niece is like, but it's so good for you. And he's like, I'll drink it. I, I knew it was some hippie sh- Okay. Okay, so for clarification, <laughs> most of the times that we have said bee pollen in this episode, we intended to say either bee venom or... Just pollen. pollen. Right. But bee pollen is pollen. It's pollen that the bees like have <laughs> taken and packed and you can eat it. It has like... Okay, actually the Wikipedia on this is gross. It says that it has honey <laughs> and bee secretions on it. Mm. <laughs> So that's probably why it tastes gross. If you're eating bee pollen out there, stop. Just stop. (laughs) Oh, Uh, bee pollen is sometimes referred to as ambrosia. I don't mm. think that's what the gods were thinking of when they... Uh, Ambrosia is is lightly fermented meat. It's not bee pollen. Come on. Anyways. (laughs) All all that's ridiculous. So in the reagent section of this paper, uh, honeybee venom was from ALK Abello Source Materials, Inc. And yeah, it's honeybee venom. It's... Yeah, pure, pure stuff. And they also got Russell's Viper Venom. I have a better idea of how they got that uh, from Sigma. Apparently, Sigma, in addition to selling cocaine, also sells Viper Venom. Ooh, they Do you also know that sell... they sell cocaine? Yeah, yeah. And they also yeah. sell um, Viagra. Mm, got it. Yeah. I just want to say one other thing about bee pollen. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Side effects of bee pollen, according to Wikipedia, include allergic reactions, shortness of breath, hive swelling, and anaphylaxis. So we are in the clear about the bee pollen stuff. No need All to right, edit that to out. <laughs> oh, I was never going to edit it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. good, good, good. <laughs> just press on. <laughs> okay, so so back to what they're Keep doing trying, in Matt. this. Keep back to what they're doing in this paper. They are taking bee venom, which apparently they just bought from somebody. Somebody sells bee venom. Not sketchy at all. Uh, right, and they just put it into a needle 
and they inject this stuff subcutaneously into mice and they inject it at, you know, increasing concentrations. And uh, I was actually surprised. So one of the first things that they show is a mortality curve. As you might expect, if you inject a ton of bee venom into a mouse, the mouse dies. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. Five times my 200 that micrograms. <laughs> Yeah, so so they inject five times the amount of straight bee venom into this mouse as what we inject for like the highest end vaccine that that we would ever inject. Like they they inject a lot of bee venom into these mice they at the start. They inject a gram of bee venom. Yeah, that's so much venom. Holy crap! And you know what it does? Like, bees it don't shows even you weigh that a one gram. Of the toxin like, what? hypotheses is correct now. Bee venom can hurt you. This is the acute response. Yes. So this is independent of any allergic response. There's no IgE here. This is just like, yeah. what happens when you put bee venom in? It hurts them if you put a ton of bee venom <laughs> in them. So yes. like damage is happening. They yep. they aren't happy. They're dying. I mean, right. Toxins, yes. I Yes. Toxins can hurt you. Yeah. Uh, figure one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they titrate this down pretty carefully to where the mice aren't dying from the bee venom. And one of the things that I was surprised with is I expected some sort of fever, some sort of fever response. That is not what happens. Bee venom, as it turns out, turns you hypothermic. The mice yeah, drop much- in temperature. I expected a spike in temperature and I was like, oh, that's weird. They have the axis labeled upside down. And then I realized that actually the mice become heavily hypothermic over the course of about six hours and the ones that don't recover die. Yep. Yes. Yep. Do so, we know the mechanism of that? I don't think we know them that. I thought this was just uh, general anaphylaxis. I, I certainly don't know me- well, the mechanism it, of that. It's not anaphylaxis if this is the acute exposure. Right. Right. But it's something like it. Like if you just fed these mice... Um, if you fed them like detergent, they would have this reaction as well. It Is that true? I don't know that they would have this. I, so one of the things that's in bee venom are neurotoxins. Yeah. Well, that sucks. Know. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I don't know. That I have no, I, I I have no idea so why the mice become hypothermic. I don't know why it goes down, but it's definitely something that you see in allergy presentations um, that they're it usually, so usually when you see it go down in the context of allergy, I think it's the onset of anaphylaxis. So I'm not entirely sure what it would be here, but I wonder if it's just like a similar, since anaphylaxis, a lot of, since that is mediated by like these proteases and this like inflammatory process and bee venom is also that, I wonder if the bee venom is what's instigating the response. So instead of like the mast cells releasing all these granules, you just have so much bee venom that it's essentially doing the same thing and just damaging tissue. And then the the because what's interesting is a lot of those dying, (laughs) getting sad. Yes, sad mouse. When I get sad, my body temperature. Well, they they stop moving too. They so when this happens, like they well, that's the issue. They just sit in one little spot, and then their temperature starts to drop. And that that's what I mean by getting sad. They they don't want to go run in their little wheel or drink their water. Right. No, and this what is... What mouse facility is... have you ever seen that has wheels in their cages? The best ones? Kate doesn't spend any time in animal facilities I at see research the, I watch the videos. <laughs> that sounds real creepy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, I work on a floor where people study allergy in mice. <laughs> I have learned that a couple true. of things. One of them is wheels. <laughs> so. They don't have wheels. I, mean, I know that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely true that that you know a lot of the temperature changes these are behavioral things, right? So what's what was interesting to me is if you're talking about acute mast cell, you know, responses things like this, usually like I which which is the one that's actually neuroactive, Kevin? Pyrogens, so like TNF for example and also IL-1 beta that are associated with type 1 immune responses, although as Matt mentioned, TNF is also present in mast cells. Pyrogens actually act directly on the brainstem and cause cause your set point temperature to go right. up. So right. you you think you're too cold, right. but your body is actually increasing temperature. So fever is a physiological response to an altered metabolism that causes generation of more heat. But because your set temperature changes and your body thinks that it's too cold, you as a human also behaviorally interpret that as I need to find a way to warm up, right? And so you start shivering, which creates heat and you find a warmer spot to sit, which creates heat, right? So you are actually evolved to help your body change its own temperature without you really realizing. Yes. So 
after Guys, they look at the figure one of a in figure one. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Okay, so we're we're taking we're taking these mice, we're injecting bee venom into them, and then we're seeing what happens. And the first thing, as you'd expect yeah. to happen, is that the mice die if you inject way too much bee venom. If you inject right. a gram of bee venom, they die. Right. Right. So then what happens if you inject a little less bee venom? Well, exactly what you'd expect to happen, I suppose, you mount an immune response against that bee venom. So they take a look in draining lymph nodes and things uh, of that sort. And I don't know why I just walked around that. Um, they looked in draining lymph nodes to look for immune responses, which I also have done many times. Uh, and they, yeah, basically show that you do get a response. So, Jesus. so the question, the question that they're asking. Oh my asking, God. So in figure one, We've they show it, that folks. the toxin We've falling apart. It. It's falling apart. In figure one, they show that the toxin actually does cause some damage. Now, in a mouse that recovers from the damage, the hypothesis would be that that mouse would make an immune response against the the antigen, so against the bee venom. And so, well done, in figure two, they look at is this the case? So previously, people had only seen. IgE responses if bee venom was injected with an adjuvant like complete Freud's adjuvant. So they said, could it happen just in the case that, just in our in our earlier um, injections? And so what they do see is that there is immune activation in the mice that were injected with two times 200 micrograms. So they had a dip in their temperature, they recovered, they didn't die, um, they made a full recovery. And then they also look at some cytokine profiles that are associated with the TH2 response. I do see an IL-5 there, Kevin. I'm just going to say that. No big yeah, deal. Kate knows about TH2s. Boom, boom, IL-4, I don't think IL-5. that part was recorded, Kate. You don't get any credit. Um, I'm shooting my finger guns. I just want to say real quick, Kate mentioned adjuvants. So I think we've mentioned adjuvants on progr- on the podcast before. Only 1,000 times. Possibly 1,000 times. Uh, adjuvants are stimulators of the innate immune system. So they trigger innate immune responses and get the immune system going. As Kate mentioned in this figure, they show you don't actually need an adjuvant. The bee venom is good all by itself. Must be through danger-associated patterns. Or proteases, like we mentioned before. You know, some some non-specific stimulator. Yeah. Also, yeah. how dare you come down on the beauty of get a three, aisle four, aisle five. Aisle 13. You really want to stick two, with aisle 13. Three, four, five. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's a little study aisle tip. Five. It's a little study tip for you undergrads. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing on. So then they took these immunized mice and then they challenged them with bee venom to see if they would recover better than if they just received PBS. And they see that there's actually an increase of survival um, when they're challenged with this lethal dose of bee venom if they've been immunized. Um, yeah, so now they can inject the that full idea, gram of bee venom. Yeah, adding to the idea that there is a protective immune response that's being elicited when you immunize with a sublethal amount of bee venom. Yeah. Um, and then they uh, analyze... Still a ton oh, yeah, of bee venom, by the way. Still a ton of bee venom still that they vaccinated with. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but it is protective. Yes, they show protection. And then they also do some analysis of the serum of the vaccinated um, mice. So the idea here is that whatever is protective is going, they think that it's an antibody. So they want to show it's an antibody and not a, a cellular immunity um, mediated response. So they take the serum from an immunized animal and they do a couple things to it. So they heat treat it, which basically kills all the activity all the antibody activity, they specifically deplete it of IgE, and then they transfer it into an unvaccinated mouse and then challenge the mouse again with bee venom. And they see that not only is the immunized serum protective, but it's actually protective if it still has its IgE. So another check into the, there's an immune response, this is IgE mediated. Yeah, so you mentioned heat inactivation, and uh, just to to clarify that, heat inactivation eliminates a very small subset of antibody-mediated functions, uh, which is is what they were doing, but it also inactivates complement, which is 
important. So that's this blood protein cascade. And so you don't want to be um, transferring active complement systems into another mouse. I, I just want to say something about this figure. So this is figure four. And I think this is really cool that they show IgG or IgE and yeah, not IgG. Two. You're still on figure two? Yes, that was figure two. That was figure two. And then um, the idea is developed in figure three. So if the last three panels of figure two show evidence that this is antibody and it's IgE. Oh, I see. Right. So I was jumping ahead to figure four where they yeah. sort of conclusively show that IgE but not yeah. IgG antibodies. Let's jump to figure four. Figure three okay. is just like the same concept. It's IgE. Its protection is mediated through a serotransfer. It's not T cell mediated. Moving on. Right. Right. So I really like this. I really like this idea. It's cool. Like I said, we know that IgG responses for certain toxins, like bacterial toxins, are protective. So for diphtheria toxin, tetanus toxin, things like that, IgG responses are what mediate protection. And it's really cool that they can show that IgE responses are required for this protection. What I'm wondering is they don't really show the amount of IgG relative to IgE. So if you did, if you made a type one immune response against this toxin, would you be able to get IgG mediated protection? Or is it just because, is it just because they make more IgE that IgG, IgE ends up being the protective response. Does that make sense? So you're, yeah, you're asking if the effector function of IgE is actually important in this, or right. if an IgG antibody could potentially suffice and and cause um, or and protect in the same way that IgE is now. Right. If you took the if you took the binding site of that right. IgG response, if you took all those B cells making IgE antibodies and you swapped out the IgE. Uh, constant region and replace it with an IgG constant region, would it still have the same effect? Right. So, I mean, they do follow up and actually yeah. moving right along here to to figure five, uh, they do follow up that experiment looking at um, sort of what you're saying, although there's a bit of a caveat to that. Um, so, in mice that lack the ability to use IgE, we mentioned mast cells before, and one of the things that mast cells do is they use IgE antibodies as sort of a, an adaptive helper uh, so that they know what to respond to and what not to respond to. So they have a receptor out on their surface that allows them to basically pick IgE antibodies from the serum and then wave those antibodies around. And if any of those antibodies hit something, so you've got an IgE that hits the, the B venom, then that mast cell says, oh, I just got a hit. And then it explodes with all of his granules. And so what they do is they go into a mouse where the mast cells and presumably all other cells don't have those receptors. So the mast cells can't make use of the IgE antibody in the same way. And basically what they show is that if they don't have those receptors, then the IgE response is not enough to actually confer protection. Now, you could argue uh, in a different direction with your IgG question, you know, well, maybe there are mechanisms of IgG, you know, where if you made a good enough IgG response, those mechanisms would be able to make up for the lack of this mechanism. Well, but at least, at least in this case, problem. yeah. There's a second problem, and that is that IgE is not designed to stay in serum. So IgG, one of the functions of the constant region of IgG is to be bound by uh, a molecule called FCRN that allows IgG to be recycled back into serum. So the half-life of IgG in serum is quite long compared mm -hmm. to other proteins. Most proteins in serum, other than things like albumin and IgG that can't bind to FCRN, most proteins in serum will be rapidly turned over. They'll be absorbed by macrophages in the spleen and they'll get degraded. And IgG, IgE is among those. So mm -hmm. part of the persistence of IgG, uh, ugh, it's confusing. Part of the persistence of IgE is its ability to be bound up, sort of soaked up like a sponge by mast cells and their FCE receptors. If you don't have the FC epsilon receptors, they can't have that function, but they're also not going to persist in the mouse because they're just going to be absorbed into uh, phagosomes and they're going to be degraded. So they don't actually what? show serum levels are maintained. So but it, I it, don't think it really directly answers my previous question. Although it's definitely cool that clearly FCE mediated responses. This is like further proof that IgE is doing something. I don't think it answers the question whether uh, IgG, if you made an IgG response, could actually have the same response. Right. right. Well, yeah. I don't, oh, I, I think that they 
give a lot of data that it's not IgG and that the effect is IgE. I mean, are you are you saying that their study oh, no, doesn't show it, or are you saying that like in another context, I'm, IgG might? I'm be saying important. if we made a vaccine against bee venom that elicited a type one response, mm-hmm. would we get protection? So in this experiment, when they inject bee venom, okay. they get a Th2 skewed response, which okay. means all of the B cells that are responding are class switching to IgE, not IgG. Okay. Okay, okay. So it's clear that under these circumstances, IgG is not the protective component in this case. Yeah. What I'm wondering is if you made a type 1 response and made IgG, would those also be protective? And I don't think they really address that in this. Yeah, so you need concentrations of IgE to be higher in order to be satisfied appropriately. I can understand that. Um, I mean, they do eventually. So I guess, you know, we we keep ticking these figures off here. Um, So we go from a mouse that doesn't have the FC epsilon receptor, so it can't make use appropriately of IgE, to a mouse that is uh, quote-unquote mast cell deficient in the CKIT swish-swish background, right? So these cells, or these mice, are supposedly completely deficient of mast cells, and that is uh, partially true in my hands in the past. I would say, though, that there are a significant number of mast cell-like cells that are still hanging around in the immune system. It's not a fantastic knockout. And also, the bigger problem with the C-kits uh, can be that you, you end up disrupting other cell populations as well. But at least in these mice, what they show is that that IgE protection no longer functions appropriately. So whatever, um, even though there is FC epsilon still... In in this mouse, whatever that disruption is in the C-kit swish-swish, you seem to lose the ability to protect with IgE. They have the FC epsilon gene, but they don't have cells expressing F- right. FC epsilon. Right, but good point. So my... Yeah, so your previous point still... Well, yes, it. you'd... Yes, you're right, you're right. The IgE that's being produced in all of these models right. is being but rapidly thing degraded is, in serum. Yeah, but I'm not convinced, though, that mast cells but make up a large enough do. cell population to significantly change the concentration of antibody in their local environment. But they do take the sera transfer, so they take the sera from a mouse that does have mast cells and then puts it into these non-mast cells these mast cell deleted mice and they see that there's protection and they do that throughout the entire thing where they so you are transferring in sera that should have the stabilized IgE at least in the production they they've stabilized IgE and then they can transfer that into a deficient mouse and get the protection no because stabilized IgE is not in serum so So that's so so one of the weird things about IgE is that IgE in serum normal IgE production in serum is incredibly low I would I would argue that the IgE in it is perfectly stable because it's protective i mean it's not perfectly stable but it's it's stable enough it's not all degraded you can de- you can deplete it out and you can degrade it out and you see a difference of the effect of the sera so- right but my point is okay so let's say you have some concentration of ige in the serum which is quite mm-hmm. low mm-hmm. and in an fc epsilon sufficient mouse you transfer that serum that ige is immediately soaked up by fc epsilon receptors mm-hmm. in an fc epsilon deficient mouse that FC epsilon is not soaked up by FC epsilon receptors and is not going to persist in serum for very long. And as I said, the concentration is so low that it's probably not going to be at sufficient concentration in the local environment, even if it was even if it could mediate some form of protection absent FC epsilon receptor, it would not be present mm-hmm. in tissues at sufficient concentrations with just a simple transfer. I'm not saying they're yeah. wrong. I'm just saying that that, yeah, I feel that like, piece I of feel it like, is unclear. Yeah, I feel like we're getting into territory where you'd actually, you'd just have to test that directly experimentally, right? right? I mean, you just have to do it. Yeah, if you, if, if you, could, if you could not make a protective response... If you swapped out the, if you took a bunch of B cells, you made a bunch of clones of these particular antibodies, and then you swapped out the constant region for an IgG, and those B cells could not protect against, if you transfer those B cells, they couldn't protect against venom. I think that would be a really clear uh, evidence that the something about IgE is actually protected in this case. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's really demonstrated. Yeah. I, I guess I would fall on the side of I would expect that the IgE-ness of this response is actually contributing. Um, I think they've done enough 
at least in a correlative way for me, where I would expect that the experiment that you're laying out um, would return that the IgE actually is important. But I think you're right. You you could do the you could do the experiment, and it's also I mean it's it's formally possible that the mechanisms, as I mentioned before, the mechanisms that IgE uses in order to be protective. If you eliminated those, but then you add on top all of the mechanisms that IgG uses right. in order to be protective, maybe that could be completely compensatory. Who knows? Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the only reason I bring up all these objections is because IgE is so weird compared to other antibodies. In, in some of the ways that I've talked about, it just, it strikes me that the, nor- the experiments that we normally do to test antibody responses, things that would normally make sense, aren't necessarily addressing the same questions mm-hmm. when you're talking about IgE. Yeah. But so if you want to join Kevin's IgE lab, <laughs> uh, email us at <laughs> Kevin at immunity.org. That email doesn't work anymore. <laughs> FYI. I know. <laughs> this is maybe a good time to talk about the fact that we've recently redesigned the website. When I say we, I really mean I recently redesigned the website. Oh, and when yeah. I say I recently designed the website, what I really mean is that I just ported it over to Squarespace. I was going to say. And I that's better. But there is a form now on Squarespace where you can send us email, and that works quite well. You can also comment directly on the posts that we put up for each of these uh, episodes, as well as the mini-sodes. And I guess we're wrapping up. I just yeah. started into the end of episode thing. Does, no, that's fine. You guys Sorry if this episode was a hot mess. We'll try to make it less of a hot <laughs> no, this mess is good, next time. I have a time point in nine minutes. Let's wrap this shit up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is uh, this has been immunity for, or this. Uh, I'm gonna do that over. <laughs> no, keep that one. <laughs> so this has been audio immunity from immunity.org. I'm Kevin Bonham with Matt Woodruff and Kate Franz. And as I said, you should go to our website because it's pretty now. It didn't used to be pretty, but it's pretty now. That's beautiful. Kate still hasn't fixed the Facebook page, so don't <laughs> go to that. It's there. It's there. <laughs> there is a Facebook page at facebook.com slash audioimmunity. Yeah, it exists, But there's Kevin. nothing there, so it's not worth it. I know because I set it up. I know it exists. <laughs> that is true. Also, don't go so there because you know. it's not worth anything. Uh, but immunity.org slash audioimmunity is where you will find posts for all of our episodes, uh, including our mini-sodes that we've been doing. I hope you've been enjoying those. They've been sort of all over the map, but I think they're fun. And Matt and I used to make graphics, and we just don't anymore, and I don't know why. But eventually well, we will. It was it was for a long time because I didn't have a table to draw on. Yeah, that's I was part of it. For uh, three months. That's not all a table. of it, though. Did you? You've had your you table see, for a little while. Did you see my review that came out recently? I drew that graphic by hand, freehand I, in PowerPoint. Nice. It was beautiful. Very nice. In PowerPoint. Oh God damn it, Kate! That makes me Kevin, so unhappy. Kevin, it's really cool. It's real good looking. <laughs> okay, we'll post gotta, it on I'm this episode. Page. I'm going to email yeah. it to you because it's real good Please looking. do. Okay. You're going to um, be so jealous that you can't do this. Uh, uh, anyway, all of that stuff is at immunity.org. Uh, apparently, the folks over at TWIV think that our podcast name is unpronounceable, but it's just audio immunity. Yeah, someone audio, told me that uh, TWIV had, had a nice time with our name. Yeah, no, it was real fun. Immunity.org, go there. That's where everything is. Should be pretty clear. Uh, the music at the beginning of the end of the podcast was composed by Rachel Reinick. Also, we haven't been saying, but some initial seed funding was provided by Harvard University, Harvard Division of Medical Sciences in particular. We should give them a shout out. And that's it. That was a really long outro, but see you next time. Peace. Yay! Okay. <laughs> Kevin. Oh, yes. God. <laughs> so. I think that was really fun, personally. Oh, I, I had a good time with and, it. And it's just gonna be a show. If you take out mess. all of the bullshit, we're still under an hour, which is really impressive. <laughs>